How adorable. Did you make them yourself? I'm not sure if you mean the peanut costumes or the actual twins, but the answer is yes, either way. Hi, I'm James McCray. I'm a history teacher from Michigan. Well, I guess it's not so surprising to find a colleague here in the line for the Carter Center. I'm Dr. Dabney Nair, and you're about to say that Jimmy Carter was a man of great contradictions, a humanitarian with a cold, imperious personality, a devout Christian who supported a strict separation between church and state, and a despised president who became a revered ex-president. In short, the perfect subject for a disgraced academic eager to begin his redemption arc. Before you agree with everything I just said, do you have any questions? Um, yes. Are you a stalker or do you just watch a lot of YouTube? Neither. I'm a regular on DV Comedy's The Electables, and they've been making fun of you since before the pandemic. Well then, Mr. McRae, how do you propose that I begin this Carter-esque redemption arc? Shall I defuse a crisis on the Korean Peninsula? Oversee an election in Nicaragua, perhaps? Well, you could start by watching my girls while I run to the can. I'd be delighted. After all, as a lifelong educator, I treasure every opportunity to influence young minds. I on a second thought, I can wait. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, presidential sketch comedy and history for people who can't afford Hamilton. Today, President 39, Jimmy Carter. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy Presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents The Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you. And may I say up front as the token Southerner, can we not do any bad Southern accents for yes. Jimmy Carter? Yes, <laughs> only good Southern accents. For, uh, <laughs> if we not? ever get those, we can try them. But until then, none. <laughs> What about for, for Billy Carter, though? Mm, or Jimmy himself. I mean, Patrick's Jimmy is not too bad, although I will give Carter. him that. I mean, the man commanded, what, a nuclear submarine at one point? He mm -hmm. served under Hammond Rickover, and he helped design a nuclear sub yeah. submarine. And yes, he actually, I think he got to command it at one point during the world's earliest nuclear meltdown when a proto-nuclear station in Canada went offline or I think there was like a mini meltdown at a Canadian nuclear What's a proto-nuclear plant? Whatever the hell they were building in 1948. Wow. <laughs> it was like, I, think it was... I think I mentioned the book Plutopia at our last recording. If anyone is interested in nuclear history, it is without a doubt in my top, maybe top three, definitely top five books I ever read in graduate school. And it's about nuclear communities in Washington state and in Russia and how they are similar and how they are not. 
And it's kind of fun that we're talking about Jimmy Carter before he came became president, since those of you in our listening audience, a lot of the discussion we've been having is about how Jimmy Carter's post-presidency is arguably perhaps the best post-presidency of any president ever, which leaves the thing in the middle. And that, you know, we'll be filling in momentarily. So glad we've got some nice little bookends going here. DB Company Roundup, call out now. Joe. Paul. Sandy. Sylvia. Yes, hi, I'm Tommy. And I'm Patrick. Hi, I'm Chelsea. James. James. I said I'm James. Chelsea, cut you off. Yeah, I spoke over you, James. It's literally like the story of our lives together. Now, Jimmy Carter was the first, I would say, and someone can debate this statement, too, he was the first self-appointed outsider candidate in u.s history now Ooh. wendell wilkie in 1940 no no political experience whatsoever there was a groundswell of support for him among young republican intellectuals all five of them but anyway and we all know about the ignominious rise and glorious fall of william jennings brian 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 a fat guy comes climbing up on the stage at the Chicago Convention in 1896, whips the Democrats into an uproar, and is, you know, nominated by popular acclaim. But how'd that turn out? You'll have to listen to our past episodes to learn how well, that turned out. And our future, even the episodes about multiple losers. Oh, yeah. But Paul, I'm going to push back because I don't know if you can get much more outsider than President 7, Andrew Jackson. I was going to say, as I recall, was the first president that didn't come from any lineage of the founding fathers. However, Andrew (laughs) Jackson had enormous popular supports. Paul, I would say, I don't know how much more of an outsider candidate you can get than Ford, though, because no one ever wanted him to be president. Um, (laughs) Ford was never a candidate. That's fair. You weren't when he was president, though. I mean, Carter used the outsider. I think that was just the moment in time because inside the Beltway in 1976 was just toxic. So he had to use that to his advantage. I think anybody who wanted to do anything had to have pretend they were outside. But as far as like being a Jennings like populist, he was not at all a populist. And it's also my understanding that coming in as an outsider, to quote unquote clean it up did not endear himself to Uh-oh. the Washington um, insiders, so to speak. And there were not really inclined <laughs> to help him move any of his agenda forward. Nor was he particularly inclined to, except in very rare cases, like with the Panama Canal Treaty, nor was he particularly inclined as president to play politics, to do the horse trading to stuff the sausages to use the ancient analogy he did all that superbly well just to get the panama canal treaty passed treaties excuse me there were two of them and he never did it again you know and and also i I think the, the outsider label is useful when you don't have a living political movement that you can attach yourself to and i think at this point you know, if, if, you know, if you're looking at, okay, what, what were the living political movements in the democratic party, 
you know, the New Deal movement was dead. The kind of Kennedy into the Johnson, whatever that was, great was society. dead. Yeah. Uh, the, you know, the Great Society was dead. So there, there was there was nothing. There was no living political idea where a Democratic candidate could say, I'm going to be like that guy. And people are going to say, yeah, that's a good idea. So he had to create a new image for what the Democratic Party was going to be. But I think Carter's issue is that other than like ethical, he really never actually articulated that. Never. I think so. I think, James, the lack of constituencies in Carter's political maneuvering, which let's not even call it political maneuvering, like his just mere existence because he didn't (laughs) political maneuver anything. And and your point, James, about the breakdown of the New Deal Democratic coalition, right? We've been talking since FDR about how Democrats were elected and ran on platforms that were made up of this rich coalition. Right? And how Republicans were, were running in reaction to that. Exactly, exactly. And when that coalition breaks down in the 70s because of all of the pressures of the 70s, economic and social, that coalition doesn't work anymore. You can't run on that constituency anymore. I think, James, where I I disagree with you, Carter, Carter might not have articulated, I think, a strong political sense, but I think where he maybe makes his mark more than we give him, more than historians gave him credit for, you know, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. But I think our recognizing now Hmm. is he had a policy mind like no other, right? He focused on policy and usually policies that had no strong constituency domestically, right? And so who do you appeal to? Like, who who do you run for? Who do you talk to? So he was essentially, he was kind of a, our first, was he our first technocrat? Or maybe our yeah. first wonk? I mean, I think Hoover was our first technocrat. Yeah, that's true. Okay. If, if not, hey, technocrat, if but... not like John Adams. <laughs> except, except, John well, Adams, technocrat. There we go. but John Adams, <laughs> John Adams had sort of this holistic sense of what the government should be that became something. Carter was just smart and a lot of those technical ideas ended up being things we should have done like solar power hoover like denied all the smart stuff that he did which kind of helped make the as we discussed helped make the depression worse when he should have known better this is psychologically reductive in the jonathan alter biography which i am reading uh maybe there's a maybe there's a different point in the point in the Ms. Lillian biography which you're reading Sandy but Jimmy had a very demanding father whom he was constantly trying to impress oh we haven't heard that before have we? yeah Earl (laughs) big Earl was a very successful farmer landowner shop owner one of the one of the most prominent and successful citizens of what was the county Sumter County Georgia and and he was very very stinting with his praise he called his son he called little jimmy after he was born in 1924 not before obviously hot shot or hot for short weird nickname but very still, weird uh i mean with a name like james earl carter 
he was either going to be president or an assassin. So, <laughs> so little hot was obviously an advanced student, a very entrepreneurial young man. He and his cousin Hugh, whom everyone named, who everyone called Beatty, he took the excess peanuts on the Carter farm and boiled them and sold them along with cokes to the neighborhood kids. Bald peanuts. Um, bald peanuts. That's right. Okay, yeah, another bad southern accent. But oh my gosh. <laughs> I feel like everyone should have to put a dollar in a proverbial Southern accent. <laughs> and the money will go to Sylvia, our only actual Southerner in our class. Oh, yeah. oh. And uh, may I apologize to our Southern audiences for <laughs> yeah, uh, sensibilities being offended. My, my Floridian fiance is glaring at me. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a different type of the South. So, so Jimmy was a devoted student and he, he credits... He even quoted his grammar school teacher in his inauguration speech. Aww. We must adapt to changing times with unchanging principle. Got it. Gosh, so he that was sounds all... like Jimmy Carter to a T. Oh, yeah. What? He I mean, in, in a lot of ways, he's sort of the quintessential American story right down to he met his wife when they were both little kids, right? His Lillian delivered Rosalind. There you go. That's and he kind of said when he was like seven or eight or something, I'm gonna marry you or I'm gonna marry her. I don't know if it was How quite that. They grew up like next door to each other or like in also, the we haven't seen a Jimmy Carter biopic yet. We have a like Barack and Michelle one of the early Chicago days. <laughs> well, it's because all of his best stuff has been since after his presidency, and he's still alive. So <laughs> they're both still they're both still with us. And this is the first president as at the time of the recording who is still with us. So gosh, oh. that was dark, Joe. Do you think like between recording and okay. But you don't know who's Trump going to Obama listen to us or... when because it will be well, it's a like this is a legacy production, Chelsea. That's, People that's we have been listening to us in the twenty-thirties. So this somewhat idyllic existence, except for his hard driving father. Okay. Um, but we and, never asked, answered the question of what drove him to go into politics. That was a he was not. A, I don't think he's a natural political animal. Chelsea, uh, what, do you, what would you say? I think I think Paul's question was actually why did he become president, and it was because he couldn't run again for Georgia for Georgia governor. No, so there was Georgia senator. What's but the next were, level? But even when he ran for that, I don't know if he sort of climbed a ladder like we see, you know, what we we like JFK kind of did quick as it was. Yeah, Carter did serve in the Georgia State Senate. So he had a level and then jumped up to governor and then jumped he, up he was president. also a navy man and like as as we talked about, was on a nuclear submarine. So under Hyman Rickover. Under Hyman Rickover, and I have to say that's my favorite uh, wedding picture of all the presidents with Jimmy in his navy whites and Rosalind in that adorable Rosalind. Rosalind, <laughs> but that was World War II. He was in the navy for a while. You know, military men certainly have to negotiate politics, and he was hoping to stay in the navy for the rest of his career. I think he wanted to rise to admiralty, but the problem was in 1949. His father died, and someone had to go head back to Plains and take care of the peanut farm because, I mean, he had two sisters, but who on earth is going to allow a woman to run a business? 
and Billy was far too young. Billy is. Yeah, we'll go with that. <laughs> no, he was. He's like twelve years older than Billy. Exactly. Man, it's like it's a wonderful life. It's the same story. Kind of, yeah. You get stuck on the old bank and, and loan, peanuts. building and loan. Although, if if it's a wonderful life had nuclear submarines, uh, <laughs> I'd watch that movie even more. Carter sort of started having an interest in political ambitions by to do with education, right? right. He he was in, inspired by Brown v. Board in 54 and was in favor of integration, um, but generally didn't talk about it because he didn't want to make any of his neighbors mad. Mm-hmm. But he eventually right, starts to talk about this and becomes uh, the chairman of his county's school board. The only reason that I want to bring it up is because I think that's a moment that we're seeing now, but on the right, right? We're seeing people on the right getting involved in the school board and using it as a political jumping off point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... And so he comes in as a Democrat, but it's very much segregationist Democrat, very much. Well, you know, or, were, he was never in favor. No, he's uh, never. Oh, but the Democratic he, Party was in that. The party was, was, but he was Southern not. Democrats he was were. not. Okay. No, he was not. I wouldn't say he was a maverick, but he certainly, there were far more adamant segregationists in Georgia at the time. We, we can def- definitely say that Carter was not a a strong theremin he was no. not a, a hardcore right. segregation yeah, he, he wasn't above pandering to the racists to get elected and then changing his tune to a more uh pro-integration stance yep. but um, if he's involved in education i can't imagine some of those issues didn't pass by him and he had to make some choices about what to do of course he did and he strengthened white schools the big movement in the area was it wasn't it wasn't the most violent resistance to, to the uh, federal government, but they certainly didn't want the federal government interfering in local schools. But he didn't do anything to desegregate. He you know did a little work to improve the schools for everybody, but he didn't you know he didn't want to risk alienating his neighbors. And let's be honest with you, he could have been killed yeah. if he'd done it. So he didn't risk any, you know, he didn't march any black children into a white school. Okay. He, in fact, uh, advocated a uh, state constitutional amendment banning busing. Yep. Did he come out of nowhere to become governor of Georgia like he seemingly came out of nowhere to become president? No. no he, he was oh, no, he, not. He, he was a state uh, legislator. Yes, he was a state senator, but my favorite part about him being elected state senator is he totally used a current, a present day Republican trick to get elected state senator uh, by challenging a the first election result, and but it was actually true; it was fraudulent, and yes, he was in a special election elected. He walked in on ballot stuffing. Yep. So his love for <laughs> his love for fair elections comes from a very personal place. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yes.
That ain't no joke. That's what he would cite in later years as the inspiration for his wrong support for fair election. And are we are we implying that segregationists would often manipulate the ballot box or the vote counter? I mean, it's not like it ever happened in Illinois. Oh no! (laughs) Vote early and vote often. So a man. I mean, he was a good business owner, and allegedly he was pressured by fellow members of the community to join the white citizens council (laughs) someone gave him a five dollar bill to pay his dues and he allegedly flushed he claims to have flushed it down the toilet although there are no witnesses but uh, a man of jimmy's energy and intrusiveness was not going to be happy just running a peanut farm and raising three dope smoking kids. <laughs> so again, we're talking about where did he learn his politics? He never learned his politics. No. Or the the taste for politics, let's just say. I... See, Jimmy was a governor, not a politician. Mm-hmm. He was into the governing aspect of it. The policies, the getting things done, which... Compared to someone like Reagan, who was all about the politicking, you know, yep. that made him a much harder candidate. Yep. Yeah. So I would say, I don't know, Chelsea James, maybe you can corroborate or argue with me, not that anyone ever does that, that it was <laughs> Carter's sense of righteousness that drew him to the state Senate. Hmm. His belief that he was the smartest man in any given room and that he could solve all of the problems through his wonkiness and study and attention to detail. And godliness? Separation of church and state. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not like godliness was, uh, was the, he was the only one infused with that in the South. So that's a big one that politicians like to pull out. Mm. Anyway, Chelsea James. Yeah, discussed. kinda, but also like, I feel like Carter in that era was was, in some ways uniquely religious i mean I, that that's become something that has become a trope of politicians but i feel like more in like the 90s and and 2000s i think in the the 50s through the middle 70s you really didn't have a, other than maybe just saying like like obviously there's the eisenhower and god we trust and, and nixon, the, like, and, nixon of, and billy billy graham right there was some window dressing in terms of um, but I don't, I don't think there was the same open embrace of religion as the motivating force in my life that um, from previous presidents, you know, 20 years back, as we saw with Carter. I think that I makes you right. somewhat unique. I think you're right, because Jimmy was our first evangelical president, and he was the first president for whom evangelicals voted in large numbers. They were not Southern a voting Baptist. Block. Come on, the man's a Southern Baptist. He was evangelical, though, and he did wear his cross on his sleeve. He was probably the most genuinely religious person in this century. How did Carter uh, maneuver in the Democratic primary to become the candidate? He worked his ass off. 
Again, say, he's a great, like I said earlier, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Paul. I just wanted okay. to say he's a great campaigner. Okay, go ahead. Also, that's really the era where the primary season becomes the most important vehicle by which somebody becomes president. I mean, I think it's because he, he had the best uh, slogan since I like Ike. Which was? <laughs> he that button saying, my name is Jimmy Carter and I'm running for president. It's not. <laughs> the thing that helped him it's out. Because, as, well, it's literally because he had 2% name recognition in the entire country. No one knew who he was. It was great. And so his advisors were like, when you say anything, you have to say your name. <laughs> so he gathers. Uh, I'm trying to remember if, I'm sure Chappaquiddick had already occurred. So that kind of took Kennedy out. Right. Um, but what about all the other wannabe presidents in the Democratic Party? Scoop well, Jackson. Wallace, Wallace was still around. George Wallace, yes. Jerry Brown jumped in late and won every primary he entered, but being That's Jerry Brown, right. he had too much, you know, he was working too hard to find a rock star girlfriend. Hitting Which on he the did after the primary. We talked about what made him president, what made him want to be president. I believe he had a, gen he had a genuine faith in himself in his god that he had a calling and that he was the man who was going to restore faith in our government and faith in our country and since he was no longer in power being prohibited from running from running a second time uh he had time to travel around the country make speeches for people stand outside of churches and fast food joints shaking hands and with his ambitious young friends, Jody Powell and Hamilton Jordan, uh, he could put together the kind of organization that would descend in Iowa en masse. And you really don't, I don't know if you have to really work that hard to win Iowa since like 5,000 people vote in the caucus. Maybe not, but the perception that you get when you win. There. Right. Yep. You want to talk about the proto candidate for where we are now? Holy yeah, he, he smokes! Won, he won Iowa and New Hampshire, which is always yeah. The first two, man. Great. But so it's many. The policies. reason we have a two-year uh, two-year election two-year mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so, so, four four to six years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> man. And when you were saying he was really good one-on-one, -on -one, one of the things we mentioned at the end of the Ford episode, that was the revival of the presidential debates that has become a staple. And mm -hmm. there was the, 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 they were notable in part for that whole 18 and a half, for that weird, the first debate where the sound went off and they both stood there, was Ford and Ford Carter stood at, at their dioceses, just silent, and they didn't take the camera off any of them. <laughs> and, then, and then there was the uh, the Ford comment about the Poles don't think they're being dominated by the Soviets. Oops. But there was another interview, right? The whole Playboy. Yeah, do tell, do tell. <laughs> Lust in my heart. Exactly. <laughs> what what motivated him to accept that interview? I wonder. Uh, Playboy, Playboy was a very uh, had good interviews and they had uh, good reporters. Yeah, uh, but he was writers. Jimmy Carter. Jimmy, I've looked at women with lust in my heart, Carter. No. You were going to uh, say, Chelsea? Never said more, his body was involved. He just said his heart. For more on how Playboy shaped uh, modern American culture, you should all read 
Elizabeth Frederigo's uh, Playboy and the Making of Modern America. She's from Loyola. Patrick Tonya Book Club. This time it's about Playboy. (laughs) Born in Plutonium. um, Playboy, I think it was actually other candidates had had Playboy, so it was not like an unusual. Of course, other candidates had Playboy. What's your politician? I mean. They just kept it under their bed sheets. Yeah, like else. exactly. But he went on and he, he talked about him keeping his mouth shut. He did have kind of a tendency to overshare. It was almost like the the interview was over. The reporter was packing up, I guess, his tape recorder. And he kind of asked him a one-off question. Um, and I don't recall what how the question was phrased. But, you know, he talked about his faith and how it's always trying. And he, he you know, he's has looked at other women with lust in his heart, uh, but he's still a faithful man to his wife. He's a faithful man to his wife, and he's. it is not his place to judge a bunch of guys who were screwing a lot of women. Those were his phrase. That was his phrase. Um, also, Paul, you mentioned his um, memoir, his biography, his autobiography, um, mm-hmm. and I forgot the name of the title of it but in my back of my brain i knew that it was hilarious so i went and looked it up it is titled why not the best (laughs) i thought it was going to be lust in my heart (laughs) lust in my heart for the presidency why not (laughs) why not you know why doesn't america want to be the best country that why can't america be the best it was a question it was kind of a question that Admiral Rickover asked him about his quite time in the Naval Academy when Jimmy admitted again oversharing that he just slugged. just be glad he didn't involve peanuts in the response. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> he was a mere shell of a man. But Rickover asked, "Why not the best when you were in the academy?" So that was his lodestar. Why don't we all do his best? But of course, it came off as arrogance. <laughs> and then comes the general election we we tend to think it was a thumping win but it really wasn't like carter like ford was coming on at the end there because he only won by two or three states it wasn't ford won a hell of a lot more elections before he was vice president than jimmy carter even ran on mm-hmm. he was a veteran president things were kind of sort of turning around in 1976 inflation Inflation had settled. We just had the party with the bicentennial. Exactly, but but he still was being pushed right for rightward by Reagan. Yep, he still had the taint of the pardon. Yeah. Yep. But he was a very personable man, a very nice man, just like Carter, and they did become friends. Mm -hmm. And he fought like hell to put together a decent campaign. And I get, I think the uh, statistic was the uh, polling was. Carter was 30 points ahead after the Democratic convention, which was really just a showcase for him. Ford was damaged by the convention since it was the last contested convention in American history. And I'll stand by that prediction. For now. For now. Oh, please. More <laughs> so Jimmy started kind of blowing it, just blowing his 30-point lead. It's Carter. Ford started running a better campaign. He was familiar. He hadn't, you know, blown anything up up yet <laughs> nonetheless he wins oh, and barely. now and bar- barely barely and limp- barely. limping in as we get into the white house in the late 70s oh what an era it was although he's also uh 
I I wasn't I didn't quite realize how like trend setting Carter seems to have been, but he was also uh, the first president to really have a dedicated transition team. Uh, ah. to make sure he was like prepared to be president. Technocrat, of course he would be. Why would? <laughs> and he attracted a lot of counterculture. You know who one of his? Not only was he related to Barry Gordy, you know who one of his biggest advocates was? Hunter S. Thompson. Wow. <laughs> Hunter Thompson met at some rally in like 74 and 75 and became his biggest fan. And really Carter attracted some very strange some very interesting bedfellows, forgive the pun. Uh <laughs> we were just talking about Playboy. Right. So Sandy, you've been reading the listening to the White House diaries. It sounds like the first two years of the Carter administration were actually fairly successful. Yeah, he did um did a lot. I think, you know, one of his biggest um pride was actually was the Panama treaties. Oh yeah. Is, you know, that, that was, was one quite of his biggest achievement. accomplishments. Yeah. And he worked his butt off to get that. It seems kind well, of trivial. But old been, enough to know what that is. Could yeah. you elaborate, Sandy? Or, <laughs> There are, can we get our historians to talk more? Give us more detail about Panama. <laughs> I was going to say, I am old enough to know what Panama is. <laughs> I know where it is, but what was the Panama? It was a fantastic Van Halen jam. And <laughs> so this resolved the issue with the sovereignty status of the Panama Canal, which uh, had been U.S. territory. Um, and there, it ran out after a hundred years, right? right. There, the and so I think that expiring. there was, there's kind of like, you didn't really know what was going to happen with the Panamanian government, which was kind of all over the place in those days. And so they wanted to secure, and I think, well, there were certainly kind of um, a, a group of people in the United States were like, we can't give away the, the canal zone. I think Carter understood that the canal zone was really kind of superfluous and what was important was maintaining access to the canal itself. And yep. so he was able to ratify that in a long-term treaty to return the canal zone to Panama, but maintain American access to the canal uh, for a much longer term. Minimizing the chance of military intervention either by the Panamanians or by the U.S. Yeah. He and and then what do you do to follow up clear, cleaning up the Panama Canal? Why, how about a historic uh, agreement between Egypt and Israel, huh? huh? That was big. That was big. That was um, so huge. And, and, and you know, that it's something that doesn't probably impact um, Americans that directly, but in terms of uh, really kind of putting a bookend to the, the era of repeated state conflict in the middle east nation on nation it was a big deal um and, and i know it was really i was gonna say i know it was big because they interrupted charlie's angels to make the announcement that the camp david accords were finalized you were watching charlie's angels for the interviews right joe absolutely <laughs> yes totally totally <laughs> sorry james um yeah so i mean that that was that was definitely when you were talking about the, the accomplishments of the Carter presidency, that's up there. The, the Panama Canal Treaty is up there.
It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Won't you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day to drain the swamp, a neighborly day to cut spending and government waste, and pork barrels too. I ran as an outsider with Mondale too. I'm happy to be the president just for you. Let's make the most of this beautiful day with your friend Jimmy Carter. You might as well say, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Won't you be my neighbor? Hello, neighbor. I'm glad you're here. I'm Mr. Carter, but you can call me Jimmy. What's your name? Now, that's a great name. Did you know that before I moved into this great big white house, I used to live on a farm? Well, that's right, I did. Would you like to help me sing a song about it? <clears throat> oh, well, look who it is. Two of my friends from the kingdom of make-believe. Make-believe Israel's prime minister, Menachem, begin on Friday, and make-believe Egypt's President Anwar Strat's tiger. What's the matter, neighbors? Mr. Carter! Begin on Friday came over to my part of the land of make-believe and took my ball. Is that true? It is mine fair and square. I won it. If you don't give it back, I will not recognize your right to exist in my neighborhood. Never. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, 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 now, oh, now, fellas, that's not behaving like good neighbors. I don't want to be his neighbor. He took my ball. Well, he keeps trying to kick me out of the neighborhood. Well, how about this? Prime Minister Begin on Friday, why don't you give Anwar Strat's tiger his ball back oh. as a show of good faith? Mm. And in return, Anwar, you have to recognize make-believe Israel's right to exist in your neighborhood. <laughs> and if you agree, you can come back later and I'll have some great peanut butter cookies for you. Cookies? Okay. okay. I'm from the United Make-Believe Nations. And for resolving this ball issue peacefully, you two get a Nobel Peace Prize. Yay! Well, me too? No. Bye. Oh. Well, uh, maybe next time. <laughs> I'm just glad we got that settled. Now, where were we? We were going to sing a song about my farm. Now, come on. You can sing along or clap your hands or just listen if you want to, neighbor. <clears throat> Old man Carter had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. And on that farm, he had some peanuts, E-I-E-I-O. With a peanut here and a peanut there, here nut, there nut, everywhere peanut. Old man Carter had a farm, E-I-E-I-O. And in Iran, there were some hostages, H-O-S-T-I-G-E-S, with Depot Shah and an angry mob. Here a nut, there a nut, someone save those poor folks. Old man Carter lost Iran, H-O-S-T-I-G-E-S. That... Uh, <laughs> Song situation kind of got out of control, neighbors. Uh, Mr. Carter, I'm sorry to interrupt. Well, well but... look, everybody, it's my friend Mike from the network. Say hello, Mike. Hello, uh, Mr. Carter. I'm really sorry to tell you this, 
but after the way you lost control of that song, the network has lost faith in you. We're sorry, but we're replacing you with Death Valley Days. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan's show, you're off the air. The, the American people have abandoned me. Can you say Malay's neighbor? The, 1976 was a terrible year to be elected president, right? If, if you're going to kind of draw the years to be elected president, like out of a hat, like 1928 is the worst. Uh, <laughs> 1976 is probably the second worst. Um, I don't know. 2020 and, might be knocking on the door. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it, it's it's just it's just a it's a rough time where America is presented with a lot of kind of structural issues, especially economically. Yeah. societally um the fr- I, I, there's all these frustrations and, yes. and this, like the the late 1970s is kind of the if the era of frustration if if <laughs> if the 1960s was then the era of hope and rage the 1970s is the era where we learn that there is no hope and it doesn't matter how much we rage things are just going to stay the same was there, word, was there a word that was sort of hmm. perhaps used there that was kind of perhaps the president himself actually kind of used to kind of no he didn't he did not use that he didn't, no. Carter, well, Carter didn't use... did say that he didn't mind people using the word fuck in casual conversation so maybe that was it yes he did say well <laughs> Carter never used the word malaise no he did not use a word once in oh. that speech it speaks to his um weakness on domestic affairs that he allowed the speech to be labeled that you know when we talk about reasons for for the failure of carter's presidency or i guess not the failure but like i was thinking about like the the great presidents of the 20th century or at least those who, who would make claims to greatness um which you know i think pretty succinctly are the two roosevelts kennedy and johnson Reagan, depending on your political tastes, uh, and that's pretty much it. And then, you know, like what, and basically what I saw is that there were basically two categories of presidents. There were the great leaders in terms of just their like image represented the era in which they were in, that they, that they bespoke their, um, you know, kind of, uh, you know, essence into, into the era. And then certainly Kennedy and I, I think Reagan personified those type of leaders and, and Roosevelt too. I think, um, I think Roosevelt's kind of the one that's the, is the most in between. He's kind of, he's leadership style in both. I I would guess I would lead more to him being the, the leader and image style that I just talked about, but then the other style is kind of the great legislator. Right. And certainly um fdr and lbj are kind of the the great legislators you know not that their image wasn't important especially for fdr but that their accomplishments have less to do with who they were than what they did um and so then we talk about carter and carter in some ways is kind of um I think he wants to be both, right? He both wants his image, who he is, to be kind of the the image for coming out of this malaise that the country had found itself in. In, in some ways, Carter's telling America, if you were just more like me, then we'd all get along a little bit better. 
And then he also believes that he's the smartest man in the room, that he understands mm. policy, which he does. He does. Um, and so he wants to also, I think, be the great legislator. But I think he fails in these areas in, in the image way. I think he fails because he lies in this weird uncanny valley. You guys are familiar with the idea of uncanny valley for like androids and stuff. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, you have southerner you know religious you know kind of what people maybe on the conservative side would say is what they're looking for and then you have kind of liberal progressive um you know a, a, human a, rights yeah human environmentalism. rights environmentalism environmentalism and there he is being all those things and so no one can really you know most people are either going to be on one side of that line or the other and so they're looking at the part of carter that kind of doesn't fit and they're like i i I can't be that. Yeah, right? no one I, wants to claim him as right. their own. They're like, right. that um, guy, nah. Well, when you, when you say he wanted to be a legislator as someone that had that started to become politically aware very mm-hmm. much in those years, I'll be damned if I can think of one domestic legislative bill he even tried to pass, certainly none that he could quote. Everything that he did we've talked about is more on the foreign policy diplomacy side but not a damn thing i can think of on the domestic level no i I think a large part of that uh sorry to escape to chelsea is uh he had a (laughs) shitty relationship with congress he just hated that he could not work with them yes so i think it's i i think it's that he like we talked about um earlier that he portrays himself during the campaign as an outsider so that when he becomes the ultimate insider aka the president everyone's like oh i thought you weren't one of us like everyone they turn congress turns into mean girls like you can't sit with us um we don't want to cooperate with you we don't want to legislate with you or for you um Um, now he's starting to sound like jane byrne in chicago who kind of except i think he also he didn't want to work with them like it, it was as much like he didn't want to like stoop to play the game but also he like thought he was above the game so he just couldn't like he he refused to deal and work with congress because we've been talking about how he was not a political wheeler and dealer right he's not an lbj he's the policy man right he knows best Um, and he thinks he can convince people to vote for his agenda just based on the fact that it's better, that it's the right thing to do. <laughs> well, but I think it is morally and uh, economically and just like plain better. Well, know? that was never a problem again, now was it? Well, um, they would have had way- a good policy then. And here's the most worrisome survey of all, Mr. President. Out of 535 respondents, only 12 approved of your performance. Why should that put the fear of God in me, Mr. Cadell? A pollster like you should know 535 people is not a statistically significant sample. Ordinarily, no, but this was Congress. Well, the Pharisees didn't approve of Jesus either. Ooh, that's a good line. You should use it in a speech. I would never use a religious joke in a political speech, Mr. Cadell. As a Baptist, I'm a strict believer in Roger Williams' edict to keep church and state separate. Which is why you have a 25% approval rating, Mr. President. According to the polls, your fellow evangelical Christians want more religion in politics. But my fellow evangelical Christians need to remember Jesus' words about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's 
and unto God what is God's. Oh, preach, Mr. President, preach. I don't need to preach. I prove my Christian faith by example. I help poor people. I obsess over the Holy Land. Those are just actions, Mr. President. People want words. I've spoken plenty of words. I've given interviews to girly magazines about how I pride myself on my humility. I've described my struggles to live up to Jesus' impossible standards. No one cares, Mr. President. Most Christians think standards are for other people, not themselves. And you think I should encourage such hypocrisy? Yes! If you want your approval rate to rise above 30%, you should talk more about your opposition to abortion. Well, that's my personal belief. Abortion is settled law. So what? Nixon paid lip service to the pro-life agenda, but did nothing about it. Catholics still voted for him. To use my faith in such a callous and cynical fashion will destroy people's faith in both politics and religion. And when that happens, they'll vote for the candidate who best exploits their fears. Why shouldn't that be you? It's like the question you asked yourself before you were born again. If being a Christian were made illegal tomorrow, would there be enough evidence to arrest you? Exactly. Say that in a televised address. So the voters can see my daily struggle to remain true to my Christian beliefs? No, so the voters who half listen will think that someone wants to ban Christianity. You can use that when the Republicans run Ronald Reagan against you. Ask him if he goes to church, and when he says no, you say, hmm. Mr. Cadell, you're a very smart man. But I'm smarter than you, and I know that the American people don't want a president who appeals to their basest instincts. I know that the American people want a president who will lift them out of their current malaise and inspire them to be better people. You you know what? You should deliver a primetime speech about that. It might make you a few friends. Mr. Cattell, I didn't get into politics to make friends. I got into politics to solve problems. Uh, sanctimony. Good. I'm seeing a slight bump in the polls. I got into politics to make America great again. Oh, that's the kind of phony bullshit that'll get you to a 40% approval rating. Keep it up. And if my unswerving patriotism wins me no friends among the East Coast Ivy League educated secular cultural elite, I'll still always have one very powerful friend. Oh, we've cracked 50% and we're still climbing. A man born in the Middle East. Oh, yeah. Son of a king. Yes. A man whose people despised him for his dreams. Oh, yeah. A man named Uh the Shah of Iran. Whoa, 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 whoa. Don't you mean Jesus? No, I do not. It's like I've been telling you, Mr. Cadell, politics and religion don't mix. Politics and cheap oil. Now that's a winning combination. Real stable strategy. Mr. President, I bet when I'm taking surveys in 50 years, people will be saying you're the greatest ex-president in American history. Well, thank you. That's what I'm praying for. And we've just hit single digits. Bless your heart. And James, I'm going to ask you my question now. Yes, Sandy, I like your idea. <laughs> um, was there anything that Jimmy Carter could have done uh, short of shooting Paul Volcker in uh, September of 1980 (laughs) to fix the economy. Oh man, does that, he looks agonized. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a difficult one because like, there's no, 
stagflation is the hardest economic problem to solve from a policy standpoint because your your tools it's kind of like I always use car metaphors with my students and talking about the economy, right? The economy is like an engine and it's kind of like, you know, you have an issue where you've got a leaking gasket and your tools are, you know, a hammer and a saw. All right. Like though, that's what you can use. Fix this little, you know, issue that's going on uh, that is causing the whole thing to break down, but your tools are, are grossly out of proportion and don't really fit trying to solve the problem that you have. Um, and that's, you know, what, what we have is that the, the from a, a macroeconomic standpoint, that the federal government outside of the Federal Reserve basically has two policy leaders, regulatory policy and fiscal policy. And so the fiscal policy is basically how wide is the money cannon that's shooting out of Washington? Is it extremely wide? Is it getting wider? Is it going to stay the same for a little bit? Are we actually going to try to shrink it? That never really happens, but people say they will. Um, and so that is part of it. Then there's regulatory policy, but regulatory policy tends to be stuff that takes a long time for it to really have an impact. Um, like uh, we talked about with like lead emissions yesterday, um, you know, and so you could change stuff around with like how the SEC works or stuff like that. But, you know, that wasn't really the issue. The issue was we had kind of run through the growth and production that the technology of that era was going to give us. And it kind of before we got the growth and production that came from computers and digitization, but that hadn't really gotten going yet. But we had gotten the growth and production that came out from, you know, really fine machine tools and, you know, advances in chemical technology, most of which actually happened during World War II. Um, and it kind of slowed down subsequently because there hadn't been as much devoted to research and development in the succeeding years. And then um, then the other issue was you had an increase in foreign competition, which then led American workers and American industry to be less competitive globally. We're no longer the workshop of the world in the way that we were in 1950. And so that was, you know, that combined with the energy crisis, which was both of them. Uh, Right, both both of them, um, you know, increasing energy costs, which increase as as we've seen now, right, increases prices throughout the economy, um, really put a squeeze on things. You know, probably the best thing that Carter could have done, he did, which was environmental policy to reduce our dependency on oil. Um, but you know, again, that you're talking about a twenty year solution to a problem that's here and right now. Uh, Carter asked. Yeah. On top of that, Carter had the issue of he was honest to his own detriment that he, yeah. he like he was faced with a terrible economy and, you know, a, a rising energy crisis. And his solution to that was, yeah, that sucks. Yeah. And sweaters. We, uh, we probably can't fix that easily. Uh, yeah, don't know what to tell you sacrifice. about that. And it's not yeah. America can do anything and build anything and be great again. <laughs> he was actually like, you know what? We have to stop this. And people did not want to hear that. That's so true. No one wants to be told yeah. that they have to accept a reduction in their standard of living. Right? No I one mean, wants to be told that they have to put on a sweater. Especially <laughs> if they're then told, hey, we have a crisis of confidence. It's no shit. Noting, I would think that Jimmy Carter 
I would too if I had that sweater on. <laughs> Looks good on him though. But anyway, it's not like Roger Dage. It's real butts. Jimmy Carter had a sense of symbols. He'll get out of the car on the way to the inaugural and he'll walk and wave to people. That's a nice symbol. That's and what Jefferson sweater, did, right? Sweater like, is a nice symbol. He had no sense of theater. No. He was not an actor. He was a painter. And so he thought if he put these nice symbols in front of people, they would respond in a certain Pavlovian way. He did not inspire with his rhetoric. In fact, he was a lousy speaker. And again, like we're, we're living in America now. where We've kind of blown things up because people insisted they wanted someone who would tell it like it is and say the truth. And when you actually do that, it's not very interesting. The truth's kind of boring and a little bit depressing. Especially if you're lying about depressing. it. Yeah. Well, that combined with now. when people say they want to hear the truth, what they mean is, I want to hear the most racist thing you can say off the top of your head. Yeah. And Carter uh, would do it. Uh, Joe, I, just to your point about that you couldn't name one domestic thing that Carter did for the United States. Um, he did declare um, a federal emergency in, this is one of my favorite uh, weird, awful, terrible American history things. He did declare a federal emergency in Love Canal. And oh, yeah. From which emerged the Superfund law. I think I saw that fun. movie, Love Canal Superfund. That but is... it took like 15 or 20 it... years to fully lit litigate, did it not? Yeah. And that was never he a problem did, again. He did do stuff for the environment. He did. He passed a Clean Water Act in had a Clean Water Act passed right. in 1977 that strengthened, and according to the Jonathan Alter biography, actually made the earlier Clean Water Act, the Environmental Act, useful. He put some he put some muscle behind it. Now I I might be wrong, but let me just clarify: Did Love Canal air before Fantasy Island? The this Saturday, all aboard the Pacific Princess as the crew welcomes evacuees from New York's contaminated Love Canal neighborhood with your captain, President Jimmy Carter. I just wanted to welcome you all aboard the Pacific Princess. There's white wine spritzers on the fiesta deck for the adults, and for the kids, white blood cell transfusions. With special guest Karen Valentine as the mother of an afflicted child, and Dabney Coleman as the representative of Hooker Chemical Company who steals her heart. How can I trust you? All I want is what's best for my son. And all I want is what's best for my boss. I wish I could quit loving you. Sometimes love means never having to say you're legally liable. And hilarity ensues when Gopher and your cruise director, Julie McCoy, offer dance lessons to a teenage passenger. All right, Cindy, let's get you ready for the big dance at the end of the week. Come on out of that chair. Oh, she can't get up. Her bones are incredibly fragile. She lives in Love Canal. Okay. 
Well, uh, how about we just start moving to the music? He's also deaf. Well, well, how is this going to look to her boyfriend? They met in high school. He's completely blind. Sounds like we have our work cut out for us. Then the captain bites off more than he can chew with the Superfund Act. I don't know, Andrew Young. I started the Superfund to make sure that we'd never have another love canal. And people still blame me for the whole thing. Captain President, sometimes you have to make the right decision, even if it's unpopular. Now, can I get anyone a drink? <laughs> All right. I forgot that you're our Isaac. Well, I am your only black friend, so... With a special appearance by America's guest star, California Governor Ronald Reagan. Well, hello there, Captain Jimmy. Ronnie, funny seeing you here. You haven't worked since they stopped airing General Electric Theater. Well, I heard there may be an officer's position opening up soon. Wait, what? And a musical number by Charo, as required by law. The Love Canal at 87 Central. Followed by Fantasy Three Mile Island. D-Chain! D-Chain! D-Chain reaction of nuclear meltdown! Only on ABC. In the, in the 70s, we don't mm -hmm. see the government thinking big picture, I think this, and this is something that I tried very hard to argue in my dissertation and my advisor shut it down. So here it is, Elliot, I'm gonna put it out on the radio <laughs> instead of my dissertation. I think in the 1970s, we're beginning to see the, the very, very early beginnings of neoliberalism, right? Mm -hmm. And Clearly. so the- and yeah. so and so the government is thinking less about how can the government solve this problem and how can we farm this out instead right absolutely the, i think the, that was the evident with the Nixon administration frankly some carter's ideas were in the same vein and that he was kind of let's send things back down to the local level um which again that you know there are there's some kind of good good government um research that supports that to some extent um but at the same time um Oftentimes, I, I think one of the things that happens is that once a problem becomes federalized, the ability of local officials to deal with it atrophies, and they kind of lose the skills to try to deal with those issues. You know, some of the, you know, things like like the the, the Veterans Administration in terms of healthcare or something like that, and you're going to see, oh, we're going to manage that at the state level now. State health, you know, health departments wouldn't know what to do with that. Like they, they, they would be overwhelmed. They have, they've given up the resources to deal with those issues and so when you say no okay guess what your problem now to fix they're going to kind of it's going to take them a long time to, to build up that ability to deal with those problems again it's a um, major erosion of the new deal ethos of big government can and should do these things because they're the only ones the capability of doing that well and carter, and carter was more fiscally conservative than what you would expect of what we think of as a progressive democracy. Culture, culturally, culturally small, liberal. Right. Smaller government. He deregulated like the airline industry. He started Rocking. deregulating stuff. He was all Rolling. about the balanced budget. Yep. Um, and so he, like, he, one of the reasons Congress was pissed at him was because he 
knocked down a lot of their big spending plans. He was not a big spend Democrat. Wait, no so you, are you telling me that when a libertarian bro tells me that he's socially liberal but fiscally conservative, that's a real thing, and it's Jimmy Carter? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got yourself, you got yourself yeah. a weapon there, Patrick. Okay, James? Yeah. Well, I was I, the, the, the other thing I'll mix in is that there was the Supreme Court decision that uh, started to curtail uh, admissions policies for people of color and poorer folks sort of saying, well, you know, you know, that rather than you had to use that to, to balance it, you could use it to balance. And I'm blanking on the name of the decision, but that was 77, 78, I want to say, and, mm-hmm. you know, sort of a signal that even the Supreme court as liberal as it was, was going, again, we were starting to see, the erosion of the New Deal ethos, which is going to be setting the table for the next guy and what he does for the next 40 years. And maybe I would make the argument that what he has set up, we are seeing the erosion of and we are living the in the middle of the erosion of it. Nineteen seventy nine, not a good year for Carter um, or anyone. For anyone, really, because first you get Three Mile Island, I think. I think that comes first. Yes, it did. And he handled it really, really well. Actually. He and Rosalind, I almost caught myself there. (laughs) He and Rosalind, he traded in on his nuclear knowledge, flew to Three Mile Island with Rosalind, and there were silly pictures of them in yellow boots, et cetera, et cetera. But he assessed the situation saw that there was no real threat of a bomb or or, or widespread irradiation and said, calm down, everybody, and got back on the helicopter. He handled that brilliantly. And again, that was charity. That was because in part, Saturday Night Live brilliantly parodied it with the Pepsi syndrome, if you remember Mm -hmm. that sketch. I remember. Comes in, personally tries to clean up and turns into the amazing 50-foot president. This is Garrett Morris. Kisses Garrett Morris on the lips. Yep. Uh, so, so which is interesting because by that point, Carter has become a but the butt of national jokes culturally, mm-hmm. which is not hasn't though. <laughs> well, but but it tends to often be important in how you play with it. You know how you how you deal with it, and it kind of stuck on Carter. It's sort of like it stuck on Ford. Nixon had laughing and Carter had saturday night live yeah yeah um and then you get iran but uh, the thing about iran i'm going to give i'm not necessarily going to uh give him a pass on this one because we're talking about iran's like it's something that he couldn't help well one he sucked up to the shah he said that the shah was going to protect shah was our great friend and ally and two this might not be his fault, but the CIA gave him utterly shitty intelligence about well, Iran. Well, how Mid-1970- about three? Well, I was going to say, how about three? There's going to be a pushback from the Egypt-Israeli accords from OPEC. Are we not going to anticipate that? I guess not. I think he was willing to do it anyway. Yeah, we're up to the Shaw and energy policy and the hostages. And I told everybody, just James and Chelsea told, I tell them the story of one of my first acts of 
political action at my local high school because one of the hostages apparently taught at my high school. So we thought it would be a really oh. cool idea to burn an Iranian flag at our all boys Catholic high school. Yeah, how'd that go for you, Joe? My first act of civil disobedience happened when I was in high school. When the American embassy was taken over in Iran in 1979 and 54 hostages were taken, one of them happened to have a connection with my school. He taught for a year or something like that. Anyway, of course it was kind of a big deal at the school, which was an all-boys Catholic school. And being full of idealism and uh, testosterone, my buddies and I came up with an idea to express our righteous indignation in a way that was true to the spirit of the Bible. Jim. Did you bring it? <laughs> Look at me. I was going to set the world on fire. Right here. It's going to be cool, Joe. Now, Jim was that kind of friend that kind of tagged along with you and helped so long as he was never the prime suspect. Let's see it. Now, Bob, on the other hand, he was the friend who was always the prime suspect. Okay, okay. Bob, calm down. Check it out. Nice. Hey, did you bring the lighter? I hope my mom won't miss this. Love it. That thing is going to go up like a Roman candle. <laughs> they burn one of ours, we burn one of theirs. Justice! Now we just got to wait for the lunch period. Hello, boys. Hi, Hi Mrs. Mrs. Cummins. Cummins. Of course, Mrs. Cummins would drop by. Our friendly neighborhood guidance counselor. The lady never went out of her office except to smoke and refill her candy jar. What you got in the locker, Jim? Great. Someone squealed on us. Mm, you know, school stuff. School stuff. Mm -hmm. Mind if I take a peek? I, I don't think that... Yes, uh, I do. Jim doesn't take his gym clothes to get washed very often. And Joe... Why are you holding a lighter? You aren't usually hanging out with the stoners in shop class. Uh, maybe it's time to experiment? <laughs> you? You're a straighter arrow than I am. <laughs> <laughs> this day was turning into one of the worst in my life. Caught in a potential act of terrorism without the act taking place and being revealed as being squarer than a high school guidance counselor. Yeah, she's got you there, Point Dexter. Ain't that the truth? You wouldn't happen to have a flag from the country of Iran in that locker, would you, Jim? Why would we have that? Joe! I didn't say anything. Oh, sounds like you just did. Hey, this thing is in my locker. I'm here on an academic scholarship. I'm not even Catholic. Gentlemen, I'm here because the office has gotten five calls from reporters and TV stations in the last 15 minutes about some sort of flag burning that they think is going to happen on school grounds. Ugh, damn it. Don't tell my mom. Wait, which stations? <clears throat> I don't know what you may or may not have in your locker, Jim, but... One of the hostages went to school here, you know? I I understand that. Part. It's wrong. We want to protest. 
by burning an Iranian flag inside the high school? I just kind of want to see it burn, man. Well, well, when you put it that way... Are we being busted? You will not be busted yet. As long as all three of you come with me to make calls to the rest of the stations and papers to cancel the flag burning so we don't get it on the air. We can talk about a more appropriate way to express our outrage at another time. And this way we don't contact your parents or potentially delay or cancel your graduation. That's in the spring. I suggest you take advantage of this offer. Okay, okay Mrs. Mrs. Cummins. Just to be sure. Give me the lighter, Joe. I don't want you to burn yourself. I need to give that back to my mom. She may miss it. <laughs> I've met your mother on parent-teacher nights. She won't miss it. <laughs> That's cold. Hey, hey, guys, check it out. There's a TV camera crew coming up the quad. Oh, fuck. Hey, language. One more and you'll get a demerit. Attention, attention. There will be no flag burning on campus today. Repeat, there will be no flag burning on campus today. All right. Oh, boy. Let's get you guys in the office. We'll make a quick detour to the dumpster with whatever is in your locker, Jim. Let's go. Yes, yes Mrs. Commons. You know, as long as the station's here. I don't have a lighter anymore. Find another flag. <laughs> so no flag was burned. Uh, uh, we did organize a protest in solidarity for our alumni a week later. We all made speeches and those TV stations covered it. My parents were proud. But to this day, whenever I see a lighter, I think more about my humiliation than anything political. And for that, I'll blame Jimmy Carter, since none of this would have happened if he didn't let the hostage crisis happen in the first place. Hey, Carter got blamed for everything bad that happened in the 70s. Why not one more? The hostages are taken just before, just in the fall of 79. And Carter's just having so much trouble. So that leads to the 1980 campaign and the bloodletting that was just the Democratic primary which, season. Which I would like our audience to know, at the very least, whatever I say, it was a simpler time. I usually mean, we were just dumb. <laughs> we were Joe, dumb. This, this raises the question for me, though, since you're bringing it up. Are you saying that foreign extremists influenced an American election to elect <laughs> a Republican? Maybe the most famous Republican of all? Would you say that? Link Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Tommy, you re you really said that in a way that the first thing that popped in my head was Reagan the red nosed reindeer. <laughs> yeah, the most famous Reagan of all. <laughs> so we, we mentioned Ted Kennedy, this one of the, the scions, scions, lions, whatever you want to put it, of uh the old school democratic coalition or you know representation. He runs against Carter. Um, how does he not win? Besides the whole Chappaquiddick thing, yeah, because he's a shitty campaigner. Okay, I mean, because he's Ted Kennedy. He's 
Oh, he just doesn't have the drive to bridge the gap. Yes, I made those terrible jokes. <laughs> oh, that's a little, that's in a little bit of poor taste, but you're not wrong. His reputation was sinking fast. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could say he was taking a nosedive. <laughs> Get them all out. Come on. Oh, oh no, man. we're saving these for the losers episode. But I also remember when he went to the convention, it was just the most desultory weak endorsement that you could possibly give but kennedy gave a great speech that got a much better reception than carter's but it was also going after carter at the same time yeah he dropped a few cans about carter but the very night that the hostages but the hostages were taken for the very day the within the same 24 hours uh kennedy gave an interview to i believe it was 60 minutes where when asked whether why he was running for president he gave a paragraph long uh response that did not include a complete sentence good so he could really not articulate a personal vision he was a symbol of what and he did have one very strong and very good issue and that was universal health care but america was so ready for that in 1979 i just don't know why 79 80 yeah mm. and, and so i i just had to look it up um was carter i'm trying to think if carter had the nomination clinched even after the attempt to rescue the hostages which ended in, in an unmitigated disaster that was mid-april that was april 25th Oh, those were those are still prime that was still primary season that was still primary season because then you had that also in 1980 you've got uh carter deciding not to take the not to go to the olympics in moscow thought that was a brave choice which yeah especially after we beat the russians in hockey in that mm -hmm. that previous so just a lot of momentum going against him with old ronald reagan who i'm pretty sure had the field cleared in 1980 i'm sure well, yes. we will talk more about it um and then on top of everything else but, uh george hw bush at least put up some token resistance as did john that. anderson the lead singer for yes <laughs> who i was going to say who then and if if i have one regretful vote in my life it's my first presidential vote because i did vote for john anderson my regret is that i didn't vote for John Anderson, so we can just swap <laughs> our cancel each other out. Right. And obviously we can talk a lot more about but basically Carter wasn't gonna win that thing, was he? Also, was George H. W. Bush was his campaign slogan token resistance? <laughs> Voodoo really economics. That, James. Voodoo <laughs> economics. Man, this is all especially yeah, when I think it was. about him boycotting the Olympics I couldn't help but immediately think of uh Cromwell and the Charleses because I think ultimately that story is it doesn't matter how smart you are compared to your wasteful opponents if you take away Christmas and sports it's over <laughs> true though well yeah. How, how long does it take before the culture begins to realize he's doing things post-presidency that are worth respect and and gratitude? I would Probably say he started building houses for yeah, exactly. For House, houses for humanity. 
Habitat for Humanity. I'll say I Habitat remember for Humanity. Thank as you. a kid in the mid '90s, I remember him being sort of a liberal icon then, but it seemed like it was kind of new. Again, I wasn't super politically conscious by this point. He and was. He started with uh, his diplomacy. Yeah. And his he advocacy and for human rights. He and Ford were became good buddies and yep. started mm -hmm. doing things together. Yep. When did he start? He when did he start to become an election observer for the U.S.? I, I don't know. If the first one that I can remember is Nicaragua in 1990, when Carter supposedly talked to the head Sandinista, his Daniel Ortega. Mm. Supposedly, Carter personally talked Daniel Ortega into accepting a loss. No, mm. no, no! Don't seize the government. When you lose, let this nice Violeta Chamorro lady take over, and you can just run later, which you did and became infinitely worse. But you prevented <laughs> a military coup or a civil war in Nicaragua. And that was like, that was, I believe, yes, summer of 1990. Okay. That is the most conspicuous memory I have of when, oh, Jimmy Carter is kind of. Kind of smarter than we all than all of us thought. Yeah, I mean, I remember because I when I bought my condo in '93, I always had given to to uh, Habitat for Humanity, and I, and even in '93, I, I was aware that Carter was doing a lot for them, and was, just became aware of that organization because of because of him, because of what he was doing. I was just going to say, I was going to say, Jimmy Carter is now a liberal icon with lots and lots of Democratic friends, ex with some conspicuous exceptions those being the democratic presidents who followed him <laughs> neither clinton or obama can stand him obama doesn't like carter obama doesn't like anyone i don't think who can who's more of a moral exemplar than he is yeah and that like, is my belief I don't and know, jimmy Jimmy's a preachy guy, and I don't think Barack appreciates that. Yeah, I mean, between the drone strikes and Guantanamo Bay, I think Carter would have some things to say about uh, Obama and how he conducted Without himself. a doubt. Well, but Obama and Clinton both very much operated on charisma, and that is not something <laughs> you don't want Jimmy Carter around if that's what you like. Look, I think if he had gotten along with other Democratic presidents, they would have been Al Gore and John Kerry, people willing to talk oh. you to death. People who make him look yeah. animated. By Except way, Obama's we, as much of a as as much of a of a policy nerd as either of those guys. He just happens to have charisma to burn. And you can also make teeth. dad jokes. Yeah, yeah, but that's that makes Obama more like Johnson in that he's you know involved yeah. in policy, but like he can get things done because he knows how to deal this, with people. This is also bringing something up for me. I want to go back to as we were comparing. Barack Obama is exactly the same as as uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. <laughs> that is my statement. It's going on okay. my shirt. One of the things that I will say, though, about Carter's post-presidency is I think, I don't think Carter becomes a different person between his presidency and his post-presidency. I think he just becomes unencumbered with the pressure the ec the economic pressure but also just the plain pressure of being president right yeah. and everything him becoming the american scapegoat during a really shitty time in america so it's much easier for him to become this liberal icon where he can do humanitarian things and just be a good human 
because no one we don't have any reason to call him the scapegoat is no. it also because there's a certain amount that we really do get be, going back to nixon and probably to this very day the level of cynicism that we now look look at the presidency with the fact that carter finds a space where he doesn't seem to act cynically no but his to his beliefs well whether true or not they sure seem a lot truer therefore it makes it a lot easier to admire him yeah i think we also i and i know i'm answering in place of the historians here i just want to get this in i think we see him do something that other post-presidents don't if he criticizes something, he then takes some action. Like, I'm going to use this as an example. The Bush administration's handling of Hurricane Katrina, a lot of people complained about. But then Carter built houses for victims. And like, mm -hmm. this is, it's a big difference. This is Intercontinental Radio News. We take you now to a field outside Palm Beach, Florida, where a meteorite of unusual size has landed near the Trump Presidential Casino. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Philip Phillips. The object doesn't look very much like a meteor, more like a huge cylinder. The color is sort of yellowish-white. There's a curious humming. The tip seems to be unscrewing. Phil, could this be a publicity stunt by Ivanka Trump to promote her new line of casual bondage wear? I doubt she planned for the object to land on her head. Wait, something large as a bear and glistening like wet weather is crawling out of the hollow top. The eyes are green and black, and saliva drips from its pulsating, rimless lips. Wait, has Eric Trump been released from prison? The hair is too neat. The hump shape is rising out of the pit. Now that sounds like Donald Jr. It emits a jet of flame that strikes the bouncers head on. They're turning into flame. Oh, the humanity. Indeed. It appears that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have tweeted, Ha, ha from their orbiting space station. Wait, two figures are fighting their way through the fleeing crowd. They appear to be two very old people, one of whom carries a tray of small grayish discs and the other a pitcher of white fluid. Why, if I'm not insane, it's- My it's... name is Jimmy Carter and I used to be president. This is my beautiful wife, Rosalind. Welcome to planet Earth, Zork the Conqueror. We thought you might be hungry after traveling so many billions of miles. So I made peanut butter cookies. Fresh out of the oven. Surely your plan to destroy the Earth can wait a few minutes? It appears that the 39th president and his wife, 115 and 112 years of age respectively, but still in good health, have invited the alien commander to share milk and cookies. Mmm. And based on how his tentacles are stroking what I hope is his chin, the alien commander is considering it. Is this yet another foreign policy triumph that Mr. Carter will use to diminish the memory of his unsuccessful presidency? There you go again. My presidency wasn't as bad as you Debbie Downers in the press have always made out. I never started a war. I negotiated a treaty with Panama. I made climate change a priority. Not bad if I do say so myself. I'd call it pretty darn good. Mr. Carter, were you asked to intervene by your fellow Georgian, President Marjorie Taylor Greene? Maybe she'll ask for my help once the Secret Service untapes her mouth, but the cookie initiative was my idea. So you knew that Earth was going to be attacked? I did. In 1978, I relieved the stress of the Israel-Egypt Accords, 
by building a telescope with my bare hands. When I scanned the skies over Camp David, I spotted a ship, created by intelligences greater than man's, well, most man's, heading towards Earth. I calculated it would land on October 30th, 2039. And here they are. Have another, Zork. Mm. Did you think about warning someone? Oh, why would I bother? No one ever listened to me. Anyway, after I left office in my spare time between housing the homeless and overseeing elections, I built a ham radio set that allowed me to communicate with our friend Zork here. We just prayed that we'd live to see the day that Jimmy's foresight would be vindicated yet again. And it looks like the Lord has been kind. So, you always knew that one day you'd be having dessert with a many-eyed, methane-breathing, tentacled insectoid? I've been blessed in my life to have so many different and wonderful experiences. How are the cookies, Zork? Yum! <laughs> oh, oh that, that doesn't sound good. Wait, you lured these predatory aliens to planet Earth so they could be destroyed by pathogens to which they have no immunity? Mr. and Mrs. Carter, that's brilliant. May I remind you that Mrs. Carter and I are humanitarians? In anticipation of Zork's arrival, the Carter Center has employed a team of virologists dedicated to finding a vaccine that would save the lives of our alien friends. Now hold still. This will sting just a little bit. (laughs) Humans good. Humans live. Bye-bye. Here, take the rest of the cookies. Mmm, what recipe? Check my Pinterest. Bye-bye, and God bless, Zork. Mr. Carter, how will you answer critics who oppose vaccine mandates? I swear to God, you assholes never change. We're kind of wrapping up. I can just kind of feel it. So make sure here's your what we haven't mentioned. Mention now. Nothing really uh, encapsulates the Jimmy Carter presidency and its aftermath as much as the anecdote of when he became president, he put his peanut farm into trust because he didn't want to have even the appearance of impropriety or uh you know conflicts of interest and uh and in 1980 when he when he uh took it back over the people he had given it to ran it into the ground and he was over a million dollars in debt thanks billy (laughs) (laughs) made all that Uh, another uh carter luck thing was when the incinerator at the embassy broke right when it was being stormed so they weren't able to burn the uh secret documents and they had to shred them instead which then were reconstructed to reveal the names of like cia agents that were operating in the country and stuff like that yeah i mean normally you have to go to mar-a-lago for stuff like that (laughs) i mean like how like it's an incinerator how hard is it to work make a fire i wrote my dissertation about an incinerator it takes a lot of science thinking one thing i feel like Chelsea's dissertation is Calvin Ball. It's just like anything that comes up is like, oh, that was in my dissertation. I, <laughs> we're going to find that. Literally, out. 
I just want to like reinforce that, that uh, Carter was not popular among farmers in 1980 because his grain embargoes led to surplus, which led to lower prices. And we all know hell hath no fury than a pissed off, like a pissed off farmer. Which is Just as a little, found a great Billy quote. Somebody, when he was running, when Carter was running, asked him about Billy's reputation for being the oddball of the family. And Billy just said, hey, I've got one sister who spends all her time on a motorcycle. She did hang around a gang. Another who's a holy roly preacher, holy roly preacher, a mother in the Peace Corps when she was 70. And my brother thinks he's going to be president. Now, which one of us do you think is normal? <laughs> in defense of Billy. Adorable. Well, as I said, and um, yes, the guy we compare Carter next, some dude named Reagan. Yeah, we'll try to find something the to actor? say. About. Yeah. America's guest star, Ronald Reagan. We'll figure <laughs> out something to say about him next. I'll bring my Tums. Old Gipper himself. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Pocola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network. And listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.